The Russian invasion was always on the on the thought. We didn't think it's going to happen. No one thinks it's going to happen. And we didn't believe until the end. But if they already invaded Crimea, invaded uh, Donetsk and, and Lugansk, it was possible. So we had to think of like, how do we manage risks? And we did actually a shitty job of doing this because we really love that our team is in Ukraine, most of it. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta. Today, we're publishing a special episode with Ukrainian founder Alexander Volodarsky. We wanted to know what it's like in his shoes right now. What's going on with his team? What's it like on the ground? I've been a fan of his company Lemon for a while now. They connect companies, often startups, with top-notch software engineers so they can work directly together without a middleman. We talk a bit about business in this interview because that's what we do on this podcast. But heads up, it does seem a bit jarring at times to be talking shop with a war going on, and frankly, surreal. We asked Alexander how we can help, and he sent two links which we've put in the show notes that allow you to donate to the Ukrainian army. You may already know this, but as a bit of historical context, Ukraine voted overwhelmingly for independence in 1991 as the USSR was collapsing. In 2014, massive protests erupted after the Ukrainian government withdrew from talks to join the EU, and the Moscow-backed Ukrainian president was forced to flee to Russia. Shortly after that, Russia annexed Crimea, and pro-Russian separatists took control of parts of Ukraine's eastern regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, sparking a conflict which has rumbled on since, claiming 13,000 lives by the end of 2021. But we're now, of course, in a full-blown war. And we spoke to Alexander about it on Tuesday, March the 1st, 2022. He's seen a lot in his life, which began in the defying days of the Soviet Union. Over to you, Alex. I grew up in Soviet Union. I was born in 86. And uh, five years after that, uh, Soviet Union broke. It was not a pretty time. My mother was an easy teacher still, and my father was working in a factory, so you didn't get paid for maybe six months, and like you had to find money. Yeah, it was a tough time. I remember that. I remember we had to, uh, parents had to take other jobs. My parents wouldn't go take a tram for a 10-minute uh, ride up the hill just to save like, I don't know, two cents or something. And like in the early days, I had to, uh, not, I didn't have to, but I started like making money by, I was gathering and recycling, uh, you know, giving glass bottles for recycle. I was washing cars. That was a childhood of, uh, of the kid in the, in the Soviet Union. Yeah, fair enough. So kind of a well-trodden path there, like as in quite similar to lots of other people. And um, what about being in the Ukraine then? So when did you move to what is now Ukraine? We, we lived in Ukraine, but when I was born, it was still Soviet Union. Yeah, still Soviet Union. Okay, just trying to clarify that. So where are you based? So I grew up in Kharkov. It's on the border with Russia. And then I, uh, during my university, yes, I spent uh, around two years in New York. And then I came back to Ukraine to live in Kiev. And I lived in Kiev since. I also lived three years in, in Israel. But uh, between then, I, I lived in Kiev. Right. And tell me a little bit about what Ukraine was like to grow up in. So you've sort of painted the picture of the past with the, you know, Soviet Union and what that really felt like for people, but like give us some other other colorings just to give us some context. Oh, to be honest, it was Soviet Union still until 
until recent years. And until 2014, it was the same country. Nothing actually changed. The people had pretty Soviet mindset, even my generation, not talking about my, you know, other generations, my parents' generations and uh, my grandmother's generations. And uh, it was the same country, the same rules, the same corruption. Everything was the same. So uh, nothing actually changed. In 2018, it was the first revolution that let the will of the, of the people to, to choose. It was corrupt elections and people wanted to choose another president and a revolution. And they made the president they wanted to, to put into, it was Yushchenko time, to put into, into the power. For th- four years, he did nothing <laughs> for the country. And then in four years, Yanukovych, if you remember this guy, was chosen again by the same generation of people. And, uh, you know, for until 2014, it was the same Soviet Union. It was the same corruption. It was the same mindset. It was the same. Okay. And then from 2014? Yeah, since 2014, it was another revolution. Uh, the one when uh, Yanukovych uh, ran from the country and, uh, you know, there was Maidan, very famous events. Since then, you know, people woke up they started caring, they started doing something, realizing they're the nation, not the part of Soviet Union anymore, and actually taking care of themselves and caring about... Because before that, you... First of all, you have, everything was corrupt. You, to do anything, you had to pay. You had to find connections. You had to be someone. And after that, we, we were used to pay for things. Like, to go to the doctor, you have to pay them extra to get something extra to go. If you want to get your past professor, you have to pay it. And for everything, police stops you on the, on the street, you pay them to let you go. After that, people you know, became more conscious and uh, everything was, was changing. And also, like, we are on war since 2014. So we are ready for eight years. The country was on war. And because of that, people got together a lot and became more conscious, became more... Um, responsible, I'd say. Interesting. And so just so I'm clear, you're saying um, like from 2014, you felt like there was a bit of a step change in like that attitude. Like what about the sentiment towards Russia where you grew up? Like, was that notably different whilst you were officially Soviet with Soviet mindsets versus independence from 2014? Again, you have to keep in mind that I grew up on the eastern part of Ukraine that was much closer in mindset to Russia, to Soviet Union. Western parts were we were closer to Poland and Europe, and it was more Ukrainian. You know, they spoke Ukrainian, I spoke Russian. I, I learned Ukrainian at school, but it was not my first language. So there was no actual border. You know, funny, today I heard Zelensky, our president, talk today that before in Kharkov, there was no actual border. It was, it was not actual border. It was a border, but like you could go across there and people didn't feel anything, any divi- dividing. But since 2014, it's, it's a clear division. We know that they support this um, Balagan, this, this war over here since 2014, and they did nothing to stop it. So we drew apart with Russia and never looked back. As a company, we don't work with Russian developers. We don't work with Russian companies. And like we have no affiliation with, with Russia and don't want to be. Yeah, super interesting though, right? Because you're saying that actually the country itself was split because you've been going, you know, it's a young country, right? So you've been going through, I suppose, uh, identity politics and a better understanding of, uh, of, of the identity as people of how you feel, not just as a Ukrainian, but to your neighbors as well. 
And you're saying that there's one kind of attitude in Western Ukraine, another in Eastern Ukraine, which is understandable based on the geo <laughs> geolocation of these places. And yet, obviously, I'd imagine what you're saying is the decoupling of feeling Russian, growing up speaking Russian, being on the Russian border to being anti-Russian, which is obviously where I guess very natural for Western Ukraine to feel anyway from years ago. That must feel like a bit of a shift or was it quite quick? It was pretty natural. If you're being pressured like this, if, if you're being fought from the side, you understand that, you know, like you're not brothers anymore. And we, we never, never were. Like, it was never like in, in the whole, you know, former Soviet Union, there was no, again, on the Eastern side, there was no actual division. Like you looked up to Moscow because Moscow is richer. You know, the pop culture is more developed there. There's more business there. And, you know, maybe more fun to go to Moscow than to go to Kiev. But then when you realize that there's no way you're going to go enjoy Moscow right now because they're fighting you and you don't want to talk to those people, you don't understand those people, those people support you being killed, you being divided, you being taken, you know, invaded. This thought is just uh, doesn't make you want to, to do anything. And even until, until recent escalation, we didn't support this relationship with Russia, but still like there's a lot of products over here from Russia and people still listen to pop music that is in Russia and uh, you can talk and talk about this a lot. But right now people became conscious that this is a clear enemy and it's not just Putin, it's people who are supporting this. And, uh, you know, a lot of people on like Twitter, I became public about this. People came and said, you know, why are you, why are you talking about Russians? You know, they, they don't have to do anything with, with Putin and it's hard to, to put opinion, your opinion your opinion, what do you think? And they don't want to war, but it's very clear that if you're accepting this, if you're allowing this, you're supporting this. When we didn't want our president to be Yanukovych, to be the Putin of Ukraine, Putin like president Yanukovych, we started a revolution and we make him run. To be honest, it's those were tragic, tragic um, events that, you know, lead to this because a lot of people died, like over 100 people died. But in Russia, they do mostly nothing if they don't want to. So if you accept this, you support this. That's why there is a clear division that it was you know, waking up to this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, look, we'll, we'll come on to some of this and some of your, uh, your recent statements on social media as well, because you know, part of this, I want to understand a little bit about, about you and some of the background, obviously the context being very, very rich and interesting like about where you're from, given what's going on, but also want to speak about the business. So firstly, I don't remember where I first saw Lemon. It was a couple of years ago, and I just remember thinking, this is literally one of the coolest websites I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of websites. So first and foremost, if you haven't been to lemon.io, it is awesome. And honestly, like such a cool website, um, but we can come on to like what the inspiration was behind it because it does really stand out, which is hard to do. Tone of voice, especially amazing. Tell me about your background. Like what made you start Lemon? What was your inspiration? Um, yeah. So I, um, me and my wife, we went to live in Israel for three years. I didn't actually plan to start business there, but I couldn't find work. <laughs> I was helping an outsourcing company in Ukraine to find leads in Israel. At some point there were clients there was a client who couldn't afford our services, but she was looking for freelancer. And she asked me if I can help find her. And I knew someone and I helped her. She was very happy because before that, that she was very struggling on, on Upwork. 
And when she used her, my service, it was, for me, it was not service. I was just, you know, making a couple of bucks. But she was very happy. She brought all her friends. She was a one-person, like, um, agency, you know, marketing agency, doing WordPress websites and some kind of marketing. And she brought all her friends. I got maybe in a couple of months, I got like maybe 10 clients who were buying services for me. So for me, it became like a side hustle and I didn't actually grow it, but it grew, you know, they, a lot of people brought other referrals and um, I brought my friend who I knew already for a long time. We worked together in two companies, uh, Vasil, who's, who became a co-founder to help me. And this is how it started. Uh, the name was Before Coding Ninjas. That is a horrible name, but I didn't care. I just needed, one day I just needed to accept money. So I went to, <laughs> I just needed to come up with a name and the domain and everything. So I uh, didn't think much. Ninjas was a good name. Coding was something I did. So <laughs> I went and registered. Um, but yeah, it grew to something. Again, like we created, we didn't create business back then. We created jobs for ourselves with okay payment, you know, okay salary. And we were, we were fine with that. But at some point we had to decide to move on or to make a business out of it. And we decided to, to start marketing. The business model was like Uber for web development. People came with small projects. We had developers, we assigned developers, like Uber assigns cars. But when we started doing marketing, I started uh, promoting us on Quora, on Reddit, on uh, like different communities. We had leads, very good leads, but there was different type of customers that we actually used to work with. There were customers who were not looking to give us projects like small tweaks or, you know, making a landing page. They were looking for developers that were looking for full time developers. We started working with them and I didn't want to pivot to this because I didn't find this interesting. But at some point it, it became 90 percent of our revenue. So my co-founders just made me to switch to that. And I was happy to do that because we grew since. We were very random and ninjas became very, you know, generic name, like expert, guru, you know, all this, all this word that didn't mean anything anymore. And we decided to create a brand. That's how Lemon.io was born. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. 
You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you specifically on the show, other than a genuine fan of the website, is because we have listeners, right? And in the UK, you know, where most of our listeners are, people are, as you're probably, I hope, realizing around the world, really passionate about what can we do to help. And, you know, there are a lot of really phenomenal Ukrainian founders out there, it turns out, which is great. Um, you guys are certainly not sure. Very well known, obviously, especially for technology talent. But I really wanted to interview someone whose business can easily pick up new business from people listening, because obviously one of the most helpful things people can do, other than sending money and sending clothes and all that kind of stuff, is to support Ukrainian businesses. So I'd love you to just sort of pitch your business to our listeners um, in as clear a way as possible, like what you currently do, what your services are, and how you service the world. First of all, thank you very much for supporting Ukrainian uh, businesses right now. And uh, of course, the first thing for us in any we write is to to be able to fight and to be able to protect to protect our people. And this is where you can go and donate to the army and this very public information. If you want me I, after the show, I'll give you, give you the official links. We already donated too, and we're gonna go. We're gonna donate all, all over during the war, like at least these two months. We're gonna donate all, all our profits to the army. Because this is, you know, essential. There are a lot of people, even from my team, like two members who are already mobilized. And uh, a lot of people who are like in Kharkov right now in Kiev. And uh, I'm sorry. And, uh, the, you know, there are, I'm not talking about work right now. They even cannot just go outside and buy food. And because it's constant rockets and uh, shootings and it's very dangerous. But if you want to support as, as businesses, there are many beautiful businesses in Ukraine. We're not only ones. And they are very supportive of the army. And, and most of the people are volunteering to do different things, coordinating people, helping people to get out from the from those dangerous places. So, uh, you know, I'm going to probably name only the popular ones that people know. But if you go, probably there is a list of Ukrainian businesses that uh, can be supported. Uh, Reply IO, there is Makpo, there is uh, Preply, uh, Ukrainian company, there is um, Grammarly, of course. They have tons of tons of developers and uh, other workers in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, my company is Lemon IO. We connect startups to engineers, and our mission is to let startups anywhere in the world and engineers anywhere in the world to be able to work together directly without the dev shop in the middle. Until um, mid last year, we had majority of developers in Ukraine. Mid last year, we started opening to other countries. Uh, we already opened to Poland and, and, and Hungary and Bulgaria and uh, Czech, and uh, we're opening Turkey right now. And the majority of, of clients, of course, are in the US and uh, also England too, and the rest of the Europe. But we're gonna open to more and more and more as, uh, as soon as we can, because we are a marketplace. And the harder thing in the marketplace is the balance between supply and demand. So we have to be very focused where we open to be able to operate properly. 
we test every engineer to make sure they have enough skills, hard and soft skills, of course, uh, to be able to work directly with clients without any anyone in the middle, like a project manager, to stand on them and, and make them work. Also, we make sure that the clients, we have two types of customers, both we need to serve to clients, to startups and developers. And for developers, we need to make sure that the clients know how to work directly with the, with the developers. They have everything for that, like designs or specifications, et cetera, et cetera. This is our business. Got it. Okay. From where you started to where it is now, what has the growth been? Take us through a little bit of the journey and then some of the struggles that you've had as well up until now. So when we pivoted from Coding Ninjas to Lemon.io, it was... I think March 2020. A month before that, we had in February we had 200k of GMV. That's metrics for marketplaces. And pandemic hits, and we don't know to launch Lemon.io or not launch Lemon.io. And uh, we did. And this is the couple of months when 80% of our clients, you know, left us because uh, you know someone didn't have a budget some had to close some projects you know some didn't know what's gonna happen so we lost 80 percent of clients but um, since then we were growing within a year we grew to you know 2.5 percent from the initial GMV uh, we grew also in 2021 also around 2.5x in GMV and this was also a plan this year we, we, we plan to grow 3x but this year, we don't, we don't know what's going to happen because the, still a big part of our developers are still in Ukraine. A lot of them can't work. And the humanity can become, you know, gets more, more and more beautiful every day because we get those emails from clients that even though some developers cannot work, we're gonna still going to pay them until they can come back to work. And this is so beautiful to read um, because we made this decision because we have a lot of people who cannot work. We have people who go to work, have to are mobilized, and we committed to pay them salaries until we can if, we, if we're still alive. But um, a lot of our clients decided to do the same. That is, you know, just a beautiful, beautiful thing to do to support because, you know, when you're at war and you don't have your income, I think it's end of, end of your hopes. If you know that there are people who are standing behind you, it's beginning of everything. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, the idea of having hope behind you and quite a lot of humanity is actually quite a lot of energy that you need going into these tough decisions as well, knowing that you have support. So yeah, talk to me a little bit about the pandemic then. What what kind of impact did that have on your business? As I mentioned before, like we lost like 80% of clients, but I want to take a few steps before that and explain to you why, like, why our business existed at all. Before like all the development was mostly done in-house inside the borders of, of, for example, like if you're United States, inside the borders of the United States. When the world starting like looking around, like what can we do outside of US, people, you know, companies were pretty scared, like what's going to happen with our information and do we trust them? So that's why those outsourcing companies and dev shops became available, became possible. Then people started, started becoming more open, like in late 90s, those companies like Odesk and Elance, you know, they said, okay, you can work probably kind of directly to developers or writers or designers, but we need to organize this information. The, the more the world is open to working and is less frightened to working overseas, the less those outsourcing companies and dev shows becoming relevant. That's why like marketplace like ours became more relevant. What we do, we just 
help people match and then they work directly without no, no one in the middle, no one taking the majority of the markup. So when pandemic happened, people were like, okay, I'm sitting in San Francisco and there's another developer sitting in San Francisco and I'm as connected to the, another person in San Francisco as the person in New York or the person in Toronto or the person in London. But in London, I'm already paying less, less wages. If you go to Ukraine, I, I'm paying even less. So what's the difference? There are differences in culture, there are differences in language, there are differences in, uh, in work ethics and everything. But if you know how to organize this, if you have experience of, of organizing teams, you can overcome this, especially everything going asynchronized. So um, our business started growing naturally because people started, the market grew just because people started looking outside of the US because, it's, uh, because of pandemic. Got it. That makes loads of sense. Okay, I mean, let's let's come on to the current situation, and um, I want to reflect on some of your, um, you know, your great posts on social media. Some really great leadership coming through as well. Also, some questions have been coming in on social media from some of our listeners. So, first and foremost, on a recent post on LinkedIn, you said the war between Ukraine and Russia started eight years ago, and we kind of got used to the stress and the uncertainty. So can you expand on the reality of that? So what is it like operating in, um, in an environment as an entrepreneur in a space of like general uncertainty? I mean, I, I told you we got used to, so we got, it's, for us, it's business as usual, right? basically. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we had to think through things like, we wanted to build a team in Ukraine, but like we had those questions, is this, is this the right strategy? The Russian invasion was always on the on the thought, you know. We didn't think it's gonna happen. No one thinks it's gonna happen. And we didn't believe until the end. But if they already invaded Crimea, invaded uh, Donetsk and, and Lugansk, it was possible. So we had to think of like, how do we manage risks? And we did actually a shitty job of doing this because we really love that our team is in Ukraine, most of it. Like I think 15% of people are outside. Those are Ukrainians that live outside. And we were really proud of that. Uh, we loved our team. Also, majority of developers were from Ukraine. Like from the start of Lemon.io, we brought something like $10 million to developers in Ukraine. And again, it's not some accomplishment and we don't make the Ukrainian budget, but it's still something we did for our country. But we had to keep in mind the risks. And that's why last year uh, we started to expand to other countries too. But again, as I tell, we got used to the stress and we got used to to the situation and we had to just act as normal since. Okay. And, you know, obviously, you know, in my day job, I'm an entrepreneur, so I don't consider myself really as, uh, as Western media, but you also said uh, in a LinkedIn post that Western media have been spreading even more panic. So what do you think Western media are getting wrong about their communication of what's going on in the Ukraine? I'm not an expert on this. Uh, but what I felt <laughs> good, got two non-experts. Yeah. I have really hard time talking about this, but it feels to me that the media gets more benefit from the panic, from the escalation of things than the regular people. And when they want people to go and read your story, they're going to make it more dramatic. They're going to make it more uh, horrifying just so people, you know, the term clickbait, that just people would go and and reflect on this. Uh, but at that time, 
we had less panic than the people around us. We got so many calls and messages and emails from people before everything was happening. And it was very disturbing for us because when you're trying to make a sense of things around you and plus you have this all this pressure from the media, it's not productive at all. Uh, that's why I said what I said on, in, on LinkedIn and Twitter. Yep, that sounds fair. I mean, I hope you don't mind that I've been stalking your social media and, uh, and then asking questions around it. But, that's fine. Um, I made a decision two years ago to become um, more open and transparent. I started building in public. Most of our numbers of the companies is on, the, on Twitter. I was going to say, I do the same thing. Yeah, so I, I do building in public as well. And I've actually been very attracted to the fact that you, and actually took inspiration from, I, I need to do this. I want to update my Twitter. You've put your key company goal, you put that as your subject line on Twitter. And I, I absolutely love that because I think that kind of stuff keeps you honest, right? You know, it really shows what you're trying to demonstrate leadership and hold yourself to account in front of other people. So yeah, I got a sense that you might not necessarily mind. Okay. Obviously, you know, as a Ukrainian, you will have had a sense of, you know, the last eight years posturing towards a moment of hopefully not happening, but I guess like a sense of inevitability. So, you know, when you say like, well, we got used to it, we got used to dealing with uncertainty, not speak on behalf of other people, but just yourself personally, how did you feel then when it actually finally happened? Was it expected or were you actually still surprised? Oh, we were, all of us were very surprised. Even, even though we were getting ready and we were thinking through the situations, the day when it happened, it was, I think, 10 hours before I came back from vacation. I took my parents and my uh, oldest son to Barcelona. I don't know, just because they deserve it. <laughs> but we came back on Wednesday, 5 a.m. in the morning, the bombing happened. And no one, you know, we were expecting this, but actually when it happened, it was horrifying. And we didn't believe they will go through with this. And then when more things happen, we didn't, we didn't think they're going to go through with this. Now they're just shooting to the regular houses, home buildings. And on Thursday, when bombing happened, we didn't think this would go towards the civilians. So like every day is, is a new discovery. Yeah, I'm really sorry. I, I want to bring up a really phenomenal post that you did do. And it was just before this happened, right? So it was a couple of weeks ago where you said there is very little you can do as a CEO when your country is on the edge of a full-scale war. And, you know, I won't read out the whole post, but obviously, you know, you were talking about some of the things, lately events that have been escalating, Western media spreading panic, and actually, you know, you did, even though you don't expect it because you're always dealing with uncertainty, you still had the thought of, of sitting down with your team and just talking through potential plans, Right. What have you done as a leader? So let's talk about that right now, because I think uh, the thing that, you know, Europeans and people around the world are learning very quickly is there is some really great exceptional leadership on show from Ukrainians at the moment. So let's talk about what you have done and how you have spoken to your team so far. First of all, you know, I, I got a lot of love from Twitter and, and, and LinkedIn from this post. I didn't expect this. I didn't think I, I even had to, to post this. And my CMO said, you have to you have to show this and it's going to get feedback. And people saying this is uh, like great leadership. I don't, I don't. Yeah, I'm looking on LinkedIn, you know, 20,000 likes. I got something like 3.5 million views on Twitter and LinkedIn and a lot of DMs. I, I couldn't go through them and like in replies. And at some point I, I just turned off the phone because I couldn't. It's very disturbing, but it's not about leadership. It's something I wanted people to do to me. So I did something that I, would, I was expecting to be done towards myself. 
And at that point, there was a lot of buzz in the media and people were getting nervous. And I said, like, why do I keep people nervous? I need to do something. And that's when me and, and you know, and the same my founders thing thought and we got together and decided to go through just basic steps to make people more certain about. And we're glad we did it because um, when Panic started, like we gave two months advance of salary uh, just in case. So people have cash if anything happens. And because of the panic, when everything happened, pe- people went running to banks and, and ATMs and it was really hard to accumulate cash. And right now cash is very, is, is very needed because you need to move around. You need to be able to, I don't know, hire a car and, and so on. We assured people that, you know, whatever happens, we still going to pay them. And this is some kind of a little like 1% of certainty in this craziness. And we said that if you're mobilized or you decide to work as a volunteer, uh, we're going we're gonna to still pay you until we can. You know, if the company's alive, we're going to pay you until we can. If you're fighting or if you, I don't know, going as a volunteer or if you are in the regions like right now, we have several people who just, you know, they, they under, underbombing. And, you know, one girl is just in, in our cover now and, she has like almost no reception and she, she had fired her home and, you know, it's crazy. This is something I wanted to, wanted people to do to myself and this is what we done to the company. Nothing else we actually did, um, if I'm not mistaken. We told them that if we need to evacuate, we'll do everything to help you evacuate. But in reality, when this happens, there is very low chance to organize things. So it was much better for people to go and, you know, evacuate themselves and then we'll have to take care of them. And again, like we thought that we're going to go to Lviv and like few people went to Lviv and um, there was not much opportunity to, to find housing because like everyone went to Lviv. So we allow people to go wherever they want to go and we're allowed to do right now to do whatever they need to do. And we said, you need to take vacation or sick leave or anything. Right now, you do whatever you need to do. You have your job. We're going to operate the company as much as we can by the people who are available because a lot of people, uh, including me, not a lot of people, 10 people, including me, are outside of Ukraine right now. But you do your thing. Whenever you're able to, to work, you, you can work. If you cannot work, no judgment, just let us know and be in touch so we can, if you're like in recruiting, we need to make sure that we can allocate your capacity to someone else. But other than that, you're free to do and, you know, safety first. And what's the response been from your team? The reaction of people was very normal. I mean, they, uh, again, like it's not something that... I didn't went and, and win the war, whatever, you know, <laughs> not, not a hero, but, uh, you know, there were people who were very thankful and understanding. And if you respect people and treat them like you want people to treat you, they're going to treat you the same way. So people are very thankful and, uh, they are very dedicated to business and to the team and the team is very, you know, they got together and helping each other in different situations and coordinating each other. A lot of people volunteer on their free time and, uh, it's just a picture of beautiful human being, you know, dealing with whatever they have to deal, but in a human way. The same, you know, from our clients, we got so much support from clients, from partners. I got email from people like people I've met maybe once or twice and emailing us or I've been to the podcast of uh, Andy Warner, a beautiful human being who was very worried, you know, asking questions and trying to help. 
and uh, it's just when you deal with this and there's you know this shit on, on this side on the other side there's so much beautifulness that it just covers everything you have to deal with so uh, this is the response <laughs> okay got it and just um, you know you said you said earlier so you're not currently in the Ukraine right yeah so where are you based at the moment we, I'm an Israeli citizen, so I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm taking my, my, my family, my, my two parents and uh, wife and two kids to, to Israel right now. I'm in, in Budapest right now. Got it. So you've made, you've made it out in time. And I'm, I'm assuming, you know, that is uh, like a lot of leaders must be thinking about, you know, where they can just be safe for the time being, right? Yeah. But not, not only safe, what I was thinking is, Again, like, I don't know how selfish is this, but I need to make sure the company is operating because so many people rely on this. And it's not only me or founders. There's like, we have 45 people in the team and they rely on us. And there is hundreds of developers who rely on us. And if we collapse, there's so many people without salary, without any support. It's, I cannot do that. We have to have people outside of Ukraine right now operating because most of the people who are not in Ukraine, even though if they're not in... Try not to think just about people who are in dangerous zones that are like, I think, six or seven people over there. But people who are in the safe zone, still, there's so much stress that most of them, you know, working probably on 20% capacity and then send them because I, I'm, I'm like this, the same. But as soon as I'm out right now, like the first day I can work actually. So I'm, I'm going to be working 24-7 to make sure that everything is running and we can pay people, we can uh, pay taxes, and we can donate to army and volunteers, etc. Yeah, totally got it. In terms of like leadership skills, um, I guess these are ones you just don't really anticipate having to learn as a founder. And at the same time, you know, you've grown up in a world of uncertainty where you have that sort of anything could happen at any moment, edge of your seat, like in the back of your mind, attitude towards managing and growing a company. Like, how do you feel like you have handled crisis management, which is essentially what this is? Like, Do you have any good lessons for founders that are listening now that sadly might have to learn how to deal with, uh, with leadership in times of crisis themselves? Uh, good question. I don't know how to answer. As, as a founder, you and you know that, if you're tired, you just stop being tired and you just go, I don't know. I mean, you have to understand that, that a lot of people dealing with a lot of shit around, uh, not right now, but like in general, and you're the one to, to be stronger. So if you're strong enough, the people will uh, go towards you. If you're very weak and you like, you're, 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 you're down, you're, you don't have a, how to explain, I'm, I'm sorry for my English, but you are like dull and uh, you don't have energy people go towards you you know down too so this is something to think about you cannot you wouldn't be able to build a company if you cannot keep yourself on the highest level because people who are looking up to you if you're down they're gonna look down to you <laughs> they wouldn't have the energy especially in times like this of course not every founder we're gonna go through war but uh you will go through mini wars like you don't have enough funding or some of your employees are leaving. Like we had to let go our CMO and uh, we hired, hired a new one. It was a pretty hard time for us. And I think 50% of the people left uh, because of that. So at this time, it's a mini war because a lot of employees looking at the situation thinking, oh, maybe this company is going down, you know, like a lot of people are leaving. 
And this is how you communicate this. This is how. So if you make it on the highest level, people will look up and, you know, they will uh, just go and, and keep on going. If you don't communicate it well, you know, people will think that this is a company that is uh, going down and uh, they're not going to be wanting to work here. I want to, um, you know, come to the end of this interview by basically summarizing the most common social media posts we've actually had uh, or question, which is, um, what can people do to help? Three things. Uh, first of all is donating. Again, I uh, cannot say enough at these times, if uh, army doesn't have enough support, enough provision, enough weapons, they, they cannot operate. And thankfully, many countries are helping, a lot of people are helping, and it helps a lot. Second is supporting those people who had to evacuate. And I see a lot of, a lot of uh, countries and people are doing, like we were on the, on the train station where just regular people went out and you know, started giving out food. And this is so beautiful and like helping people in the lines, giving water, helping them with kids and like it's beautiful. And if you can do that, I saw Airbnb is hosting like I think 100K uh, people hosting all around the world, the refugees from Ukraine. And if you can support, you have any way to support, it's the second thing. The third thing is very important is to spread the word because a lot of, I'm sorry, I forgot the word, but a lot of um, crime, a lot of military crime is happening against civilians over here. And one of the biggest uh, opportunities to stop it is if the whole world would know about every person, uh, every civilian who died. You know, a lot of rockets went, went to apartment buildings and uh, soldiers, Russian soldiers would like shoot towards the, and kill a lot of civilians in cars and uh, spread the world, whatever you know. Of course, check your sources because there's a lot of fake information, check your sources and try to follow only only official sources or look at volunteers who are connected to, to official sources. But if you know it's certain information and it's not fake, spread it. It's very important for, for the world to know. And this is the things how you can help. Amazing. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. I know that's super difficult time for you, your family, your company. Um, I want to remind people to head to lemon.io if they're looking for some of the best software developers in the world. And Alex, um, hopefully people can also find you on social media and continue to follow and engage in your posts as you build your company in public. Yeah, thank you. My uh, On Twitter, my DMs are open and you have any questions about entrepreneurship, about the situation you can... I, I cannot promise I'm going to come back to you right away, but I'm open to talking and uh, answering questions and helping and, and so on. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. As much as also like it can be really tough running business, you have got such a privileged position to be able to say if you've got a successful brand that has a platform and you have a voice. I actually find that really empowering. So yeah, it comes in swings and roundabouts and it, it is crazy how one day you can win a Tesco listing in one morning and then have a shitstorm with your factory in the afternoon and like you can have like a year and a day if you know what I mean.
That was Pippa Murray, the founder of the nut butter brand Pip and Nut. I really enjoyed this interview because one, I'm nutty about nut butter. Sorry, I had to. And two, I was joined as an interviewer by Rich, the co-founder of Secret Leaders. But Rich was also an early investor in Pip and Nut, having known Pip from university. So we thought he could help me out. Find out how Pip has managed to build a love brand that you can see in most supermarkets across the country next week on Secret Leaders. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.